feast is called Rosh Hashanah, which means New Year. And it happened uh, last Wednesday. It was the Jewish New Year. And everybody's giving gifts to each other and all this kind of stuff. And really where it came from is Babylon. Because when the Jewish people were in Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian year starts with the seventh month. It literally was the the beginning of the year. And they just picked it up from there. Uh, But also, uh, within the Jewish tradition, this feast is associated with Day of Judgment. Uh, Jewish people believe that God created the world on the seventh month. And that he will also judge the world on the seventh month. And that on the day of uh, trumpets, three books are opened before God. The books of the righteous or the books of life. The books of the wicked or the book of death. And the book with names of people who don't quite yet belong to either one. And so what Jewish people do between this day and the first of the seventh month and the next feast, the feast of of atonement, Yom Kippur, ten days later, what they do is they try to do as many righteous acts as possible. They give a lot of money away to different charities. They try to feed the, the poor. They even have this, this a tradition called the Tashli when they go to a, uh, to a body of water and they symbolically throw stones or some crumbs out of their pockets to symbolically get rid of all their sins so that by Yom Kippur, the, 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 the holiest day of the year, their names would be written in the book of life. That was not actually the original design of this feast, but there is something to it, and and we'll get there in a second. There is also uh, in Isaiah something that also uh, reminds us of the usage of the the, uh, shofar. In Isaiah 27, we read about the fact that God is going to gather Israel at one point from all the corners of the world into the land, and he's going to do that by using a shofar. So again, the idea of warning or gathering together. And then there is something really interesting in the New Testament that connects what we read in the New Testament, seems like it, with the Feast of Trumpets. And it's the second coming of Jesus. The first part of the second coming, if you remember, will start by the rapture of the church. When all the people who really have a relationship with Jesus will be taken up from the ground and will be with him, like, like Enoch in the Old Testament. And this is what we read um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. I will not, we, we, we will not all sleep, but we all will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. Uh, another passage like that in 1 Thessalonians 4, we read, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet of god with a shofar blow and the dead in christ shall rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be cut up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the lord so what, what i'm trying to say here is since jesus died on the passover and he rose again on the third day and the spirit was given on Pentecost, these are all feasts. It is very likely the next big thing, which happens to be his second coming, might happen on the day of trumpets. Now, I once had a conversation with a lady, and she told me this. She said that a couple of years ago, she said that she was uh, sitting, basically, she got her friends around her, and uh, they were all sitting in, a, in, a, in a, somebody's house on the uh, day of trumpets, waiting for the rapture to happen. 
And guess what? It didn't quite happen. And so they were all really disappointed because they were waiting and it didn't happen. Okay? There is something that we need to understand. The, the rapture can definitely happen on the day of, of, of trumpets, definitely. But it can also happen a half year later. It can happen next week or it can happen tonight before we put our head on our pillows. The point of the feast where the people were celebrating is to be ready, to be ready, to be ready, to wait. And we see passages like that throughout the New Testament that call us to be prepared for this. Look with me, for example, in Matthew. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Nobody, nobody will be waiting for it. It's just going to happen, so be ready. Or James 5, 9, behold, the judge is standing right at the door. It's coming. It's approaching. Or uh, Revelation 22, behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. You see, it's very important to understand that in, in our faith, we are called to wait upon the Lord. Like Abram was waiting for God to fulfill his promises in the future, we are called to wait for God to fulfill his promises in the future. We're called to wait for the second coming. But waiting in our faith does not mean inaction. Are you waiting? Yeah, sure. What are you doing? Nothing. It's not like waiting for the bus. It's more like waiting for the baby to come, you know? You're not doing nothing. You're doing a lot of things. You know, you're checking your blood pressure and you're running around and you're getting some vitamins and you're doing baby showers and, and you're doing, you're preparing actually. I, I think this analogy is much more likely than waiting for a bus. Sitting there once a year, not doing anything, waiting for the rapture to happen. That, that's not waiting. That, that's not waiting. Waiting is living a righteous lifestyle. Waiting is living every day to such an extent that we are actually ready to meet the Lord today. Waiting in our faith is to live in such a way as to, you know, in the way that we talk to other people, the way that we work, the way that we drive our car, the way that we do our life in a righteous way. That, that's waiting. And not just once a year, every single day. And the feast he just reminds us about this. Okay, so moving right along, the Day of Atonement. This is the most holy day in the entire Jewish year. Um, in Leviticus, we read, On exactly the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement, and shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a Day of Atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on the same day, he shall be cut off from his people. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls. This is the most holy day in this entire year. Something very special has been taking place for the last three and a half thousand years, or b before the temple was destroyed. Ultimately, the tabernacle became a temple and the same procedures were happening in the temple. But there was the high priest that had to do something during this feast. The highest of all the priests. He had special garments just for this one day. He had to bathe himself multiple times during the procedure. The, there were lots of sacrifices brought during this day. It was the day when the, when the priest would enter the Holy of Holies. And I'll explain in a second what that means. There was a very special sacrifice that I'd like to draw your attention to. There were two goats that had to be basically identical so that they're basically one and the same sacrifice. 
one goat would be slaughtered on the altar and the, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies with the blood of this goat to make atonement, to make final, uh, to attain final forgiveness for all the sins of himself, of the people, and to cleanse the tabernacle because it's this, remember the, the system of purification so that the Holy God can live in the, amidst the uh, sinful people. So one of the goats he slaughters and enters with his blood, the, the Holy of Holies. But the other goat, something really incredible happens. The high priest puts his hands on this goat and he turns the goat's face towards the people and he enumerates, he confesses all of the sins of the people and he symbolically transfers them onto this goat, the scapegoat. And this goat carries all these sins of the nation outside, outside the, the nation as far as possible into the wilderness, and there it dies. It's a very interesting transaction where the sins of the entire nation are put on one who is responsible for them and who takes them away from the nation. And then the, the other goat is slaughtered, and with this other goat, the priest temples, the, uh, the priest enters the, the Holy of Holies. If, if this is the tabernacle with this uh, revelation of God in the pillar of fire over the Holy of Holies, if you take just the outline, the layout of this tabernacle, which would look something like that, the, the big uh, uh, square there, this is the, uh, uh, this is the actual tabernacle with, with the walls, if, if you can see here, there, the fence was pretty high so that nobody could actually look into it. It was, it was all fenced off because it was the most holy thing. Uh, you couldn't actually go into the, the court of the tabernacle because that was only for priests. Uh, and then if you see a smaller rectangle there um, to, the, to the left, this is the actual tabernacle that consists of two rooms. One was the holy room where only special personnel could enter. And the next one, uh, this one right here, this is the holy of holies. Nobody ever entered that room. And this little uh, square of there is the uh, Ark of the Covenant with the uh, uh, scrolls with the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod that, that uh, blossomed. Nobody ever entered that room because there was the living presence of God manifested there all the time. And you could not enter it because God is absolutely holy, only with the blood to make atonement. And so once a year, the very high priest would do this. And in Hebrews, we read something about Jesus who actually, according to the system, fulfilled it all for us. You see, if we do not fully understand the Old Testament system, how it works, what Jesus did for us, that does not make too much sense. But in Hebrews, we're in Hebrews 7, we read, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater number because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds this, his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for, such, for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You see, God has given the people something that they would practice year in, year out, so that they would understand something of importance, of incredible significance that God himself will do later on. When God came himself 
and offered up himself and took our sins upon himself and received punishment for all of our sins himself and gave us holiness. You see, because Jesus was God, the sacrifice that he brought is infinite. It stretches out to, into the very past and into the very future, covering all of our sins. If you feel insecure, you feel you've done something bad and God just can't forgive you, know this. His sacrifice was infinite. There is nothing that you can do to separate yourself from his love. And obviously, the result of this is, uh, if we quickly go on, is the Feast of Tabernacles. That on the one hand commemorates, um, this is a tabernacle, but on the one hand it commemorates uh, the, it, it's seven full days, it is to be celebrated, it's the seven is being the number of completeness, so it's to be celebrated for seven days. But it is a day that remembers the tabernacling that God did with his people when he dwelt with them. And when this feast is celebrated, it is a reminder that something is coming in the future where we will be with God face to face. When he will literally be tabernacling with us and we will see him and be with him forever and ever because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of the day of atonement where he has atoned for our sins. Um, and uh, the, in Ze Zechariah, we read this interesting thing, by the way. It's, it's interesting that in the church today, we don't really celebrate the day of um, Feast of Tabernacles, but we will in the future. So you better pay attention about this one. In Zechariah, we read this, then it will come about that anyone who are left of the nations that went against Jerusalem, so talking about the future battle of Armageddon, uh, will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths which is, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them, no harvest. They will be punished. In the future, it seems like God plans on keeping this feast, tabernacling with us and commemorating this feast and celebrating this feast with us. It, we read also something incredible in Revelation about this future time when it actually will take place. And uh, we read here about John saying, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Do you notice that it's still talking about God dwelling with his people? This is the desire of his heart. This is what he built the universe for. This is what we lost in Eden. This is what he tried with Israel. This is what he had accomplished through Jesus. This is what is waiting for us in the future. We experience it now, and there is even a greater fulfillment of it in the future that we can wait for. So basically, to summarize it, when we talk about these feasts, what we, what we see is that the Day of Trumpets is calling us to wait, to live a righteous life, to be ready for the second coming of the Lord. 
the Day of Atonement is telling us about Christ as the perfect high priest who brought the perfect sacrifice, who made us holy before God. And therefore, we have a relationship with God. And we're looking forward to dwell in a tabernacle with the Almighty Creator of the universe. I think this is very powerful. I think what God has revealed to us back there is something that can change our life. Something that reminds us of the big acts of His in the past. Something that is reminding us of His promises in the future. Something that is very exciting. These are the fall feasts of Israel. Um, I hope, I hope, I know it was a lot of information. I know. But I hope it was helpful to you to see a little bit of the unity of the Old Testament and the New Testament, to understand what God was doing and is doing. And I hope it may also have uh, revealed to you maybe a little bit of the world of the Jewish people who are still celebrating those feasts, maybe with a slight different meaning. And it's an opportunity to talk to them about that, to use that as a springboard to share the gospel with them, something that we do quite frequently, okay? Let me, let me close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your desire to dwell 